Would you volunteer hours of your time listening to this? And it was good for the community to have multiple ice cream places so that people knew, oh, I can come to this thing for for them to put on 2020. You have 26 questions remaining. There's someone who does. Hi, I'm Robert Fruckman. I'm a nine-year resident of San Francisco. I'm a member and volunteer lead with MB Action, and I live-tweet a lot of meetings. Your pinned tweet is, quote, I can't believe this hearing is still going, end quote, San Francisco <laughs> proverb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fruckman is documenting what's going on, but probably no small part of what makes people pay attention is the way he pokes fun at the proceedings. It ranges from the concise author's note, LOL, to an image or a meme. In response to planning commissioners talking about the city needing to build 10,000 units per year and averaging about half that, he posts a picture of Saturday Night Live cast member Kenan Thompson saying just, yikes. Before he weighed in on housing policy, he satirized other topics. In 2013, he wrote a version of the Lord's Prayer called The Startup's Prayer that begins, Our VC, who art in San Francisco, hyped be thy name. But the purpose of live tweeting is more serious. He's putting what happens at government hearings on Twitter because some of San Francisco's biggest housing developments and most important housing policies are decided at these hearings. And often, people don't know about them. I am a, a longtime San Francisco resident, and I also want to say that I never heard anything about this process until seeing it on Twitter, to be quite frank, not all that long ago. Study after study shows that, that people who tend public comment are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly older, overwhelmingly own their own home. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, I'm looking into one person's efforts to get what happens in tediously long government procedures deep down in item 5 or 15 on the agenda into a more public space. And I'm talking with him about what he thinks the solution is to opening up this often exclusive process. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Many hours into various commission hearings and board meetings, Robert Fruchtman is there to observe, sometimes participate, and mostly put the proceedings on social media. That's because they tend to get more traction there than on official channels. His handle is fructose, at underscore F-R-U-C-H-T-O-S-E, a play on the spelling of his last name, and it has more than 3,000 followers. How on earth did you get into that? When I got to San Francisco, it was very hard to find an apartment. It was very expensive. I really always wanted to move to San Francisco. You know, as a, as a gay man, uh, I really felt that this would be the one part of the country where I'd never have to worry about being accepted. How do you find the time? It's really the fact that I have, that I'm able to hold down a white collar job that allows me to have that time. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's not lost on me that I'm a white cis male who's doing this live tweeting. Like, I don't think, you know, I'm definitely not the only person who can do it, sure, but it's definitely not everyone. And it was really the trouble he had finding an apartment that set him on this path. I was fortunate to study you know, a field that would allow me to move to San Francisco. And the moment I got here, it was hard. It was hard to find housing. Like I, it took a couple months for me to actually get just a sublet in the city. Oh my God. And, yeah, I got. Familiar story. 
you know, there's there's one point at which I was like apartment hunting. I got stabbed in the back before I could even like what? sign a lease on my apartment. Yeah. Like I was I was trying to partner with this one person to like, you know, be roommates. And then they backed out the last minute and said, I'm going to live with some other roommates. Uh. Yeah. So like the moment I got here, it was it was hard <laughs> to just live here. Yeah. And I was living in Petro Hill when I first got here. And I was like, I was looking at the fact that I was paying fourteen hundred a month for, you know, a bedroom. And a bedroom and a multi-bedroom like apartment. Yeah. 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 I was mm. looking out at the street and like all the buildings are like, you know, so cute, but also like so small. I'm thinking <laughs> like there really should be more homes for you know San Francisco or and maybe there would be it'd be less expensive. And so as the years went on, I started like, you know, being more active in politics, you know, voting every year. I started to like hear about, I think it was, you know, SF Barf and San Francisco Yimby. I think it was around 2018 when I saw a news article that really solidified, you know, my view that something is wrong. I think it was it was an article about uh, the Haight-Ashbury Neighborhood Council, which was quoted in an article in the Examiner about how they supported a six-story, 100% affordable housing building in the hate, but they were negative on the idea of that building being eight stories. And I thought, hang on, there's something wrong here. And that's really where I started getting to be more active in San Francisco politics. Be honest, did the funny acronym for SF BARF catch your attention and make you want to get involved with this? <laughs> Not really. At first, I kind of saw it and I was like, uh, this looks like a weird kind of sideshow. Mm. And it was really as time went on, I started to think maybe this group that keeps complaining about housing is they may be on to something. Mm -hmm. I should probably explain. SF BARF is an acronym. It stands for the San Francisco Bay Area Renters Federation. The group organized renters to advocate, often at hearings, for more housing to be built faster. YIMBY, similarly, stands for Yes in My Backyard, meant to convey the opposite of NIMBY, not in my backyard. YIMBY Action is a nonprofit that pushes for more housing construction. They want relaxed zoning and other restrictions and streamlined permitting processes to make it easier and faster for developers to create housing. I really started to get involved when I saw on Twitter there was a person by the name of Victoria Fierce who was live tweeting government meetings and in the Bay Area. I really was struck by some of the absurdity of, of these meetings. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. I really could not believe like the kinds of stuff that was going on at these meetings. And I thought maybe, maybe I could do this with a San Francisco focus. Live tweeting, firing off a chain of posts on Twitter with updates on what's happening as events unfold, is not new. Journalists and other observers have been doing this since Twitter has been a thing. But for Fruckman, it brought what was happening at government meetings that most residents don't know about into a different forum. And doing it himself made him realize what the tenor and pace of these meetings can be. The first hearing he live-tweeted was a discussion about a proposed building with more than a thousand units. It was a meeting of the Associated Citizens Advisory Committee. It really helped me to understand what political meetings in San Francisco are like. Honestly, like there's a lot of meetings, a lot of committees, a lot of commissions Anyone who wants to live tweet San Francisco government meetings really could probably do this 24-7 if they really wanted to. And this was really like, this was a housing meeting that really 
showed me like, you know, what kinds of timelines San Francisco is working with, what projects are like, really just like the nitty gritty. The nitty gritty, but also sometimes a lot of emotion. These things can get heated. What's being discussed here shapes neighborhoods. In some cases, people show up who are worried about the gentrifying effect of adding new market rate housing units. They say existing locals facing displacement from their homes can't afford these new homes anyway. Sometimes neighbors or community activists show up to point out a concern that city staff might not have known about, or the hearing is happening specifically because someone has raised the alarm about an overlooked problem. Other times, and these are usually the ones that make headlines, emotions run high over things like neighborhood character, views being obstructed, opposition to low-income housing, or even design objections. In one memorable case, Fruchtman found himself listening to a discussion where an ice cream shop owner had filed a request for the city to intervene in the permitting process of another ice cream shop that wanted to open down the block. It was contentious from the get-go. Both owners were accusing each other of dishonesty in the documents they filed leading up to the hearing. And then there was public comment. We have eight ice cream shops. Although I really love ice cream, but I think we need more diversity in the mission. And instead of having another ice cream shop, maybe some food will be better. I can't believe that during a global pandemic and protests against police brutality, San Francisco is wasting its time on a ice cream fight between two businesses. Why are we trying to put up extra hurdles in front of a business at this point? Um, it's really sad to see one business go after another. The whole process is ridiculous. There was also this kind of comment. I'm Mike Sizemore, San Francisco resident and local strongman. I need as many calories as possible to support my training. Therefore, I'm calling in to request the committee to deny the DR application and enable more ice cream options for my training. Fruckman responded to that one by tweeting a picture of an extremely buff SpongeBob SquarePants exploding out of his shirt. Knee-deep in more public comment after the commission came back from a breather, Fruckman posted on Twitter in all caps, we have crossed 40 callers angry over dessert. That cue included callers angry over the number of callers, including Fruchtman. Ultimately, the permit for the new ice cream shop was approved, with almost no discussion by the commissioners themselves. But it never opened. The process had caused such a long delay that the proprietors were in the red before even starting up. So in addition to an already many hours long hearing, the commissioners and the public had to wait through this whole discussion and it was for something that ultimately didn't go anywhere. I asked Fruchtman about the length of these hearings, something he's not alone in poking fun at. I mean, part of the reason why they're so long is because people get up and give public comment, which, you know, to some is critical in San Francisco because it's their opportunity to make themselves heard. It's an opportunity for the public to raise issues that staff or the commissioners or whoever may have missed. But, you know, it is kind of grueling sometimes. Yeah, public comment is great to some extent. The thing that makes San Francisco special is that San Francisco treats any housing project as an opportunity to veto that project. And public comment plays a big role in that. It provides an opportunity for people to essentially filibuster for two minutes. And one of the ways that it manifests is that commissioners or you know, elected officials will treat public comment as a tally. Like if you have more people saying yes on one issue than the other side, then that's that's proof that that quote unquote the community, you know, wants this thing to happen. 
But the people who are able to be visible and considered the community at these meetings are, as Fruchtman pointed out earlier, disproportionately older, white, and wealthy. So we're seeing very privileged groups shaping the opinion of elected officials, letting elected officials and appointed officials know who's in charge. And, you know, there are studies of the San Francisco Planning Commission that show that comments that against housing projects are much more likely to cause those projects to be you know, rejected or, or reworked. This kind of gets to which hearings Fruchtman chooses to spend his time on. He says he looks for cases where it seems like San Francisco's actions are at odds with its progressive image. People are not able to participate in government when it takes two or three hours to you know, wait for an item to come up. More on that and what he thinks the solution could be after the break. I've been talking with Robert Fruchtman, a resident who uses the free time his white-collar job affords him to read housing bills and monitor obscure government meetings and hearings. He's a volunteer with the pro-development group Yimby Action, and he watches and posts proceedings on Twitter with commentary. There are so many of these hearings that someone could make it their full-time job to follow all of them. But he says he picks ones that are in conflict with local progressive ideals. There is one in particular that caught my eye, which is that a particular neighborhood in San Francisco, St. Francis Wood, was looking to get historic resource status, I believe. And I think they succeeded. Yes. The Historic Preservation Commission actually passed this on to the state and said, yep, we, we believe this. When did that one cross your radar for the first time? Yeah, so I learned about that through SFMB because people do pay attention to like what the historic preservation you know, commission does at the local level and the state, you know, historic preservation, you know, resource committee at the state level. With St. Francis Wood, this really, you know, struck me for, you know, particularly obvious reason, which is that like the state of California and San Francisco are ostensibly trying to open up uh, exclusionary suburbs like St. Francis Wood, which have historically banned apartments, uh, historically supported white supremacy, and the state is trying to open up these neighborhoods to, you know, apartment construction. Okay, say more about that, because for people who don't know what this is about, I think you might have uh, rung some alarm bells when you said white supremacy. What do you mean? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, going back to the Fair Housing Act of 1968, it was a longstanding practice where Black people and people of color were systematically excluded from buying houses in desirable neighborhoods in San Francisco. St. Francis Wood was actually established with a clause that specifically barred Black and Asian people from owning property in the neighborhood. That wasn't unusual for the time. Density and housing advocates like Fruchtman often point to these kinds of clauses, as well as redlining and other policies that excluded people of color and enshrined white neighborhoods, as the root of wealth disparities and segregation that persist today. One law that continues to exist that isn't explicitly racist, but which advocates characterize as racist, is zoning that keeps neighborhoods restricted to only single-family homes. They argue it's discriminatory because of the huge racial disparity in homeownership. Research shows that greater areas of single-family zoning correlate with higher percentages of white residents. So exclusionary zoning, as it was called, was really implemented throughout much of Western San Francisco. And in 1968, you know, Congress 
finally acted, like there, there was a number of steps that led to the Fair Housing Act. And essentially, Congress prevented the, the legal prohibition of minorities living in single-family neighborhoods. However, you know, racism did not end in 1968. Legally, discrimination was able to continue through the use of, through a number of practices. You know, zoning is really the most visible in terms of property ownership. And in San Francisco, is no different. Since 1968, I think about somewhere around 50% of residential land in San Francisco is zoned only for single-family homes or detached or, or townhouses. And St. Francis Wood is currently zoned and has been zoned for decades only for single-family homes. So post-1968, we have discrimination existing in legal form through the use of zoning. Now, the association that put together the proposal to make St. Francis Wood a landmark said they'd been working on this for years. And it is an extensive documentation of all of the features of the neighborhood and why they should be considered historic. But advocates like Fruchtman showed up to this meeting in droves, saying preserving it would be preserving a racist legacy. I am a homeowner in Diamond Heights. I also live in a historic house and can name my fancy architect and my fancy developer. And three doors down from me, Habitat for Humanity is building affordable housing. And this makes my neighborhood richer. This makes my neighborhood more equitable. And this makes my neighborhood part of a history to be proud of instead of a history of racial and economic segregation. When neighborhoods build more housing, when we let more neighbors in, this is a good thing. San Francisco is a city known for its rich and accessible history. You can go to the Mission District and see original cathedrals built by the Spanish missionaries in the 1700s. You can go to Fort Point near the Golden Gate Bridge and see an 1800s-era fort that was used to defend San Francisco from naval attacks. Or you can go to St. Francis Wood and see a regular boring suburb. The only significant aspect of St. Francis Wood historically is that it is a formerly whites-only neighborhood. What they're essentially proposing that you do today is create a new monument to segregation to enshrine in amber the low density and demographics that exist in St. Francis Wood today. I understand that segregation is a part of our history, but not everything that happened in history is worth preserving. This is personal for me. Uh, My wife and I are not the same race. My wife's family would not have been able to purchase a home in St. Francis Wood. Housing advocates at the hearing, Fruchtman included, suspect that part of the reason St. Francis Wood applied for this historic designation was to circumvent state laws that force single-family home neighborhoods to allow denser rental housing. The context here is that there are state laws, you know, SB9, which have been passed at the state level to uh, legalize you know, duplexes, for instance. And state law has not been perfect about you know, ending discrimination through zoning. So one of the compromises of SB9 is that it excludes historic districts from legalizing duplexes. I have to note, the St. Francis Wood homeowners at the hearing said they'd been working on developing their pitch to make the neighborhood historic since about 2020. While it's true California has seen the passage of several density-increasing land use bills over the years, SB9 passed in 2021. The St. Francis Wood neighborhood is a little over a century old, but Fruchtman says it's really not that historic. Like if you look at, you know, Europe, which has buildings which are, you know, hundreds of years old, you know, that's that's really historic. I think the houses in St. Francis Wood are nice. You know, they have a lot of ornamentation. They look pretty. It's the kind of thing where if you see that on a postcard, you think, yeah, that that could be on a postcard. But 
ensuring that that house stays that way for the next 50 years should not be the official policy of the state of California. And by the way, the planning department did support that proposal that St. Francis would be designated as a historic district. So in, in effect, city policy is to endorse the discriminatory practices of wealthy neighborhoods. I, I'm not the kind of person who says we need to tear down everything that is you know, X number of years old. The problem that I see is that St. Francis Wood is the kind of exclusionary neighborhood that has some of the, you know, the highest access to jobs, healthcare opportunity in San Francisco. It's a kind of place where really more people should be able to live. We should not be amplifying its exclusionary status. Like houses in St. Francis Wood you know, regularly sell for over $3 million. There's no need to protect them from duplexes being built in the neighborhood or even houses being converted to duplexes. The commissioners weighing the historic designation noted a few times that social and economic criteria are outside of their purview. At one point, a commissioner asked the commenters to avoid mentioning these, noting that this happens a lot. Fruchtman tweeted that remark and replied with, Authors note, gee, I wonder why. In the end, commissioners unanimously voted in favor of making St. Francis Wood a landmark. But one of them did agree that there's a larger historical discussion to be had here. History is something Robert Fruchtman has done quite a bit of digging into. One of the things he's found is that having a housing crisis, an affordability crisis at all, is actually a very old problem here. Part of my journey as as an advocate has been to read a lot of historical government documents, a lot of reports. I found one report from, from a committee that was put together by Mayor John Shelley in 1967 that, you know, yeah, it's probably a name you haven't heard in, in a while, <laughs> I'm guessing. And, you know, one of the things that this report mentions is that there is a large influx of young single people who are uh, college educated and can therefore earn high wages and can therefore earn high rents. So basically, you have this group of what we would call yuppies today, you know, entering San Francisco, you know, working in the finance sector, working in the insurance sector, you know, the fire sector, as it's sometimes called, and they're able to earn money which can pay for, you know, market rate rents. Gosh, that sounds awful familiar. Yeah, where where have we heard that one before? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> actually, can you pull up the quote? Because I do think it's very telling, the part about how people are actually doubling up already. Yeah, so this is the report. I had to look this up. This is called Report on Housing in San Francisco Prepared for Mayor John F. Shelley by the Interagency Committee on Urban Renewal. And it says, The influx of single persons into the city is nowhere more evident and dramatic than in San Francisco. Many of the newly arrived are young and well-educated and can, therefore, earn good incomes. Even so, the high rents in San Francisco cause many to, quote, double up, unquote, and overcrowd until a higher income allows them to move into more spacious apartments in more desirable locations. I mean, do you see yourself in that at all, given what you said about when you got here? Yeah, absolutely. I... I arrived in 2013. It was basically, it was on the upswing of the tech boom in mm -hmm. the last decade. Now, I've had roommates the entire time that I've lived in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to, you know, earn a good income. But even so, I still have to, you know, have roommates to be able to live here. Yeah. 
When you look back on this, uh, first of all, I have to state for the record that I asked you about this before we started recording and you actually yes. were able to pull it up within like a couple of minutes because you have this stuff on file, <laughs> which yes. is very impressive. That is an impressive level of wonkery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like when when you're saying stuff that is so hard to believe that like, for instance, that this crisis has been going on for 50 years, it really helps to actually have these quotes or really to have these documents to be able to point to because yeah, people cite just, your sources. Yeah, people don't believe it. Wow. I mean, what is your reaction to finding this stuff and, and showing yourself and others that this actually has been going on for such a long time and we haven't figured it out? I mean, does it make you want to tear your hair out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think there's a a cycle between despair and hope and despair and hope. Like, I really do try to see that there is a good future for San Francisco. We really just have to acknowledge reality. One of the things that it makes me think about that San Francisco had a housing crisis for all these years yeah. is San Francisco also had, you know, a policy of basically forced displacement through redevelopment. Yes. And was tearing neighborhoods up. Yeah. Basically, literally. So when you say, like, there's hope for this to be better, I'm kind of like, ooh, but we don't want to go in that direction again. Yeah. Redevelopment is really the other side of the coin of exclusionary zoning, mm. where we preserve, or at least where the city would preserve majority white neighborhoods and basically tear up neighborhoods that are not majority white, neighborhoods with, you know, San Francisco's black population used to be above 10%. I think now it hovers around 2%. And really, the high point was, I think, 1972 or the mid-1970s. Redevelopment was, I'm hesitant to say redevelopment was a disaster because it essentially did what it was designed to do. Ooh. which, which yeah. Was, which, right. yeah, redevelopment was designed to remove minority neighborhoods and wholly racist in its design. Like, the, the way it worked was, you know, high-density neighborhoods of people of color would be demolished and then new neighborhoods uh, would be developed where there was less housing overall and less affordable housing. So the result was displacement by design. So let me move away from my own cynicism and toward your interest in hope. Where do you see hope? What do you think are some things that could really help with San Francisco's current situation? Yeah, I think where I see hope is that we are starting to recognize like the sins of the past, we are starting to acknowledge, you know, what is was going on. Like San Francisco is working on a a housing element, which is a state mandated plan, you know, to every eight years say how we're going to accommodate housing growth, and it is a major decision, or it's it, it is a it is a turning point that the city right now in its housing element, says exclusionary zoning is an example of racism, yeah. is an example of discrimination. Like the fact that we are able to say that is, I, I don't think that the, at the city would have been able to acknowledge that in the past decade. It's really, it's really is a turning point. You're now start, starting to see progressive politicians, you know, endorsing the idea that we need to fix our housing shortage. What about people like you who are trying to make these long meetings a little bit more accessible. 
what kind of reception has that gotten online? Do you feel like you've been able to reach people who otherwise wouldn't have gotten involved or known about what's happening in city hearings? I'm, I'm grateful that the number one response I get is usually people saying thank you. People just don't have time to sit for two or three hours through a public meeting to hear, you know, what's going on. Like the news does a good job of like summarizing the decisions that are made, but doesn't really touch as much on the process. It doesn't really touch as much on the, the attitudes of people in the room as the decisions are, are being made. It's really hard to do that when each meeting is two, three, four, five hours. Like that is, people are not able to participate in government when it takes two or three hours to, you know, wait for an item to come up. And when it takes, you know, another hour maybe for public comment to open, when you have to be able to wait another hour just to give public comment, and then you have to be ready on a moment's notice for your, your phone to say, it's now your turn to give public comment and you have two minutes. That's really like, that. that is hard for anyone. It does not scale with the size of San Francisco. It really does not scale beyond small towns, really. Mm-hmm. Is there another way to improve participation that you can see from just having been an observer so many times? Yeah, I think the solution to public comment being inaccessible is not to try to make public comment accessible. It's really to try to meet people where they are. You know, like, you know, for example, you know, going back to the the housing element, you know, the San Francisco Planning Department has been trying hard to meet people where they are by, you know, for instance, there is a survey that they distributed at food distribution hubs in the Mission and the Tenderloin. Like, they really went out of their way to survey you know, people who needed housing stability on the subject of housing stability. Like the solution to how do we get everyone to give public comment? We really can't. It's it's impossible. So you want the government to come to those people and ask them rather than waiting for them to show up at a hearing. Yeah, there's there's no way that we can ask people who need housing the most to spend two or three hours a day at least to try to you know, comment at City Hall or comment on a phone. That's not realistic. Because you've brought up the housing element and the fact that there is a strong equity focus in it and the fact that the planning department has done a lot of outreach, as somebody who is kind of involved in a voluntary civic participation project, what do you make of their efforts? I think the planning department really did something unusual in that it did go to, you know, such extreme lengths to get the input that it did. Like they held dozens of meetings with different groups. They went to, they specifically sought out people who are unhoused or have low housing stability, people who, you know, need assistance being able to eat. And they got their input. Like that is not how the city normally does business. Normally, when the city asks people for input on housing decisions or housing policy, it's really asking people who have time to go to hearings. We have time to go to public comment. For now, it looks like he'll keep tweeting the meetings. A couple days after we talked, he was posting about neighbors calling two proposed nine-unit buildings mega developments. Find him on Twitter under the handle at underscore fructose, F-R-U-C-H-T-O-S-E. We'll also put it in the show notes. I'm Laura Wenis. This is Fixing Our City. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. 
Jonathan Krim is the SF Next Project Editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next Project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. Next week on Fixing Our City, this California city tried to get to the bottom of its problems and kept finding the same underlying issue. When I became mayor of Stockton in 2017, it became very apparent that all the issues we were fighting, whether it was housing and security and homelessness, whether it was violence or educational attainment, at the root cause was economic insecurity and poverty. What Stockton did to fight that, next on Fixing Our City.